Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Those are the Lord's words as spoken in the great Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever delivered by the greatest preacher who ever walked this earth. And we are involved in a study on Sunday evenings of this great sermon, and we have come to this point in the sermon where Jesus speaks of two gates, two ways, two destinies, and two groups of people. This is a critical point in the sermon where Jesus now comes to the application of what he has taught to this point. The exhortation, in other words, now comes to put into practice what he has been preaching. And so we find this exhortation, which we've just read, which says, enter by the narrow gate, Matthew seven thirteen. That's the exhortation. And then he will plead in Matthew seven eighteen, bring forth the good fruit. And finally, he will urge in Matthew seven twenty four, build your house on the rock by doing as well as by hearing. And so tonight in our study, we're going to look at the first of these exhortations, the one found as we have just read in Matthew seven thirteen and 14. The first gate that is mentioned by Jesus is narrow, as the scripture renders it. It is straight, and I don't spell that S-T-R-A-I-G-H-T, but S-T-R-A-I-T. In other words, the word that is used here that's translated narrow means a difficult gate. It is a straightened or constricted way, in other words. It means that it is difficult to be entered. And therefore, the implication here is that there is some effort that is required on one's part if one is to enter this narrow gate. On another occasion in Luke 13, 24, Jesus put it this way, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And in that text, the word strive is from the Greek word agonizomai, which means to agonize the word from which we get our word agonize. In other words, Jesus is teaching us through his word that we are to strive or really to agonize to enter in at the narrow gate, at the straight gate, the difficult gate. The same word is present in the passage in 1 Corinthians 9.25. There Paul writes, and everyone who competes, and the word competes is the same word we're looking at here, strives or agonizes. Everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. He goes on, now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. You remember the old, uh, the old phrase from ABC Sports a long time ago. Many wouldn't remember it, but some might, and that was the thrill of victory. And the agony of defeat is that ABC's wide world of sports came on the air. That was the intro. The thrill of victory and the agony of 
defeat. Well, why is defeat so agonizing? Why is defeat so agonizing? Defeat is so agonizing because of the agonizing effort that's involved in readying oneself for the competition. There's a great deal of discipline. There's a great deal of agonizing that, that an athlete would go through in order to prepare for the competition. And then to be defeated, obviously, helps us to understand why it could be described truly as the agony of defeat. We also find this word, agonizomai, in uh, 1 Timothy 6 and verse 12. There Paul writes to Timothy, fight, there's our word, agonizomai, agonize or strive. Fight the good fight of faith, he admonishes Timothy. Lay hold on eternal life, to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And so what we see is the road to heaven. The road to heaven is not an easy path of idleness and inactivity. But the road to heaven requires work. It requires effort. It requires a persistent application of oneself to the task. Isaac Watts wrote the hymn, Am I a Soldier of the Cross? And in that hymn, part of the lyrics read, Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? And that is certainly descriptive of what the Christian life is about at times. It is not a bed of roses. It is not necessarily an easy path. The Christian life, Jesus reminds us here in the text we're looking at tonight, is a narrow path at the very beginning. It is narrow from the beginning. The gate is narrow. It doesn't start out broad and then get narrow or more restrictive or straightened later on. And that many times is one of our greatest problems in the church. Many times there are unconverted or uncommitted people in the membership in various congregations. We have to understand that the gate about which Jesus speaks here is very exclusive, very exclusive at the very beginning. I like what the late Eldridge Stevens said about it. He put it this way. He said, it's like a turnstile that admits only one at a time, and then after presenting a high-priced ticket. To get through the turnstile, to enter that gate and to enter that turnstile, one at a time, you have to also pay a very high price. The high price is everything. You have to be willing to sacrifice everything. The late guy in Woods wrote of this straight gate, quote, a wider way to heaven, just as a wider way to virtue can only mean a weaker virtue. We can be sure that the gate which leads to life is as wide as the love of God could make it. Brother Woods goes on to say, in Revelation 21, 12, the city of God is pictured with 12 gates, three on each side to indicate the wide welcome which extends in every direction and to every tribe and tongue and people. These gates are never shut. 
but each is so narrow that there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination, or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Revelation 21, 27. You see, everyone is invited to enter. The invitation is for all. Everyone is invited to enter, but they may enter only when they have stripped themselves of everything that would exclude them from entering. And so here's an example. A, a man who comes to the gate trying to take a crowd with him through the gate, but he realizes he has to separate himself from the crowd. One cannot always take a parent or even a mate through this gate because Jesus said, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I came not to bring peace but a sword. That's verse 34. And then in verse 35, he went on to say, I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And the next verse says, And a man's foes will be those of his own household. And so tragically many times, one cannot always take a parent. One cannot always take another loved one through the gate. Each one has to enter individually and pay that high price ticket for himself or for herself. Or here comes a man to the gate with a bulging wallet, but he can't get through until he first deposits his money with the Lord. And here comes a man clutching the world in his arms, as it were, but he cannot get through and take the world with him, so he turns away. Kind of reminds us of the rich young ruler, doesn't it? who came to the Lord with the opportunity to enter the gate, as it were. And yet when he was told what to do, because the Lord knew his heart and knew what stood between him and entering that gate, he turned away and went away sorrowful. Or here comes another man who enters only after he throws his bottle away forevermore. Or here comes a man who seeks to stride through that gate with his self-righteousness and pride. But he cannot enter because he fails to see that that gate is barely large enough for a man to pass through on his knees. Oh yes, there's room. There's room for all inside the gate, but it involves leaving our sins outside. No, it's not an easy gate to enter, and we certainly cannot go through it with the excess baggage of the world with us. But how many realize that? And how many even in the church realize it? Jesus said it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 19, 23. And do not thousands, as Guy and Woods put it, do not thousands among us think that all one must do to be saved is to believe that Christ came down from heaven and to be baptized for the remission of sins, and that's it. 
Brother Woods then asserts, How many there are who boast of being the Lord's people, who even now are engaged in desperate struggle to amass a fortune without the slightest fear that such will exclude them from the kingdom of God. A man who trusts in his riches cannot enter into the kingdom of God whether he possesses a dollar or a million. But you know, money's not the only problem with many. Pride, pleasure, the plaudits of men, all can be barriers to the salvation, tragically, of so many. I learned just a couple of days ago, and I won't mention names, about a co-worker of mine with whom I worked in broadcasting for quite a number of years. And it saddened me, it saddened me terribly to learn through a friend in Alabama that he had, had passed away. It saddened me because there was so much opportunity, so much opportunity that he had to obey the truth and so much effort was made by me and others during the time part of the time we were together and yet he never obeyed and even with two and a half years of a struggle with cancer to think seriously and reflect soberly on those past opportunities even those two and a half years did not ultimately make the difference. Gives you a very, very sick feeling, really, to reflect on someone that you thought so much of and, and prayed for and worked for to bring to Christ, to true non-denominational Christianity. Our Lord walked a painful path and there is not one road for the Redeemer and another easier one for the redeemed. And how many times in Scripture are we told to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, to let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus in Philippians 2.5 and in that context, the context immediately is a mind of suffering, a mind ready to suffer. Same thing is true in 1 Peter 2.21. For to this you recall, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. One path for the Redeemer and a much easier one for the redeemed? No. No, the narrow gate, the narrow gate is for all who would ultimately enjoy that salvation from sin and the ultimate joy of heaven. But our second observation is that it has to be entered. It is a narrow gate, but it has to be entered. There is no option. We have to enter it. The fact that our parents may have entered it, the fact that our parents may now be traveling the way of life, or that if our parents who have gone on have traveled that way of life and left us a beautiful example of obedience, that matters not. In relation to us, we must enter the gate. And only those who do the will of God will be saved. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, 
but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. 1 John 2, 4, he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Revelation 22, 14, blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. And in that same chapter, Jesus makes it clear in the same seventh chapter in which we're looking at these two verses. Jesus makes it clear that the man who hears and will not do is as foolish as the man who will try to build his house on the shifting sands. No foundation. Someone has written, Hearing and doing, we build on the rock. Hearing alone, we build on the sand. Both shall be tried by the storm and the flood. Only the rock, the trials, shall stand. But next we see that not only is the gate which must be entered a narrow gate, but then we also see that once entered, the way that we follow thereafter is a narrow way. We've just studied recently the mind of Christ in a passage where we looked at an acrostic on the mind of Christ, and just let the mind of Christ, the word mind, represent to us what kind of mind we should have. And you remember, meek, interested, narrow, and devoted. Christ was narrow-minded. He was as narrow-minded as the God who sent him to this earth to suffer and die is. That is as narrow as the divine commands. And that's the reason the narrow way is narrow. It's narrow because it is shut in by the divine commands. And you cannot go beyond those divine commands as you travel that way without ending up in the broad way that leads to destruction. Why would we expect the Christian way to be so easy when it is such a glorious way. Why would we expect it to be so easy when it's a glorious way? It means living like Christ. And was that easy for Christ to come and to live among men and to suffer as he did? And did not Jesus say, if they persecuted you, they'll persecute me? Did he not try to prepare his disciples for all time to come for that matter? That suffering to some degree or another or in some way in another is going to be inherent in living the Christian life? Is that not what Paul reiterated in his writings in 2 Timothy 3.12 when he said, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. There's no holiday on the narrow way. We must live every day following that narrow way. And then Jesus says what? And there are few who find it. There are few who find it. It takes effort, it takes energy to find the narrow way, and many will not make that attempt. Far too many are satisfied with something less, something easier that will salve the conscience and allow them to be accepted by the majority. When Jesus says, 
there are few who find it. He is saying there are few who will enter paradise and ultimately heaven. And yet, how many people really believe that today? How many people really believe what Jesus said when he said, and few there are who find it? You know, if a man dies who lived an outwardly respectable life, his friends will not hesitate to say he is at rest. The funeral sermon will include consolation from the preacher to the family that this loved one is better off now. And for anyone to question that is to be considered bigoted and narrow. That's the world in which we live today. To some extent, it's always been that way, but perhaps today more than ever, that is the case. Yet why is it that so many people believe the population of heaven will be so great? The answer is obvious. It is believed that heaven can be obtained on much easier terms than Christ gave. They believe lip service and baptism are all that required. And with some, it's just lip service and not even baptism. Yet Jesus told of the necessity of counting the cost before building a tower, etc. Look with me at Luke chapter 14, at verse 28, beginning. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. And then Jesus says this, So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. We've said it many times before from this pulpit, we must renounce self. We must turn our backs on this world forever in order to enter and successfully travel the way to eternal life in heaven. Because Jesus reminds us in this text that most people will choose the wide gate and the broad way. It's so easy, that gate is, to enter. And that way is so effortless in terms of traveling it. The problem is that it leads to destruction. And the word destruction literally means perdition. And so, yes, it's a popular, pleasant path to perdition. And that's why we need to heed the inspired advice of the wise man of old in Proverbs 4:26, when he said, Ponder the path of your feet and let all your ways be established. Someone has written, broad is the road that leads to death, and thousands walk together there. 
but wisdom shows a narrower path with here and there a traveler. A traveler just here and there on that narrow way. And so we need to ask, where will the path I am now following lead me? Will it lead me to paradise or will it lead me to perdition? There's another old hymn that speaks of the gate about which Jesus taught. There is a gate that stands ajar, and through its portals gleaming a radiance from the crown afar, the Savior's love revealing. Yes, in the blood of Christ I see the gate that stands ajar for me, for me, for me, that stands ajar for me. But that's the key. In the blood of Christ, I see that gate that stands ajar for me. And it's only through contacting that blood that I can enter that gate. Tonight, if you have not contacted that blood, we plead with you to do that. To count the cost, to understand what lies ahead once you enter that gate. But to enter it and then desire that pure milk of the word to continue to grow and to strengthen yourself to be able to stay on that narrow way that leads to eternal life. How do you reach that blood? Only in baptism, only in that burial in water where the blood is applied from heaven, but that baptism has to be preceded by a faith that leads you to fully repent of your sins and renounce self in that repentance, confess sweetly the name of Christ, and then undergo that burial and rise therefrom to walk in newness of life. Walking where? Along the narrow way that leads to life. If you've done that and known the joy of doing that, but you know tonight that you have not continued that walk and that you have not continued to be confined on that path by the divine commands and you violated them in a way to bring reproach upon the church, a way that needs to be repented of in a public way to restore that example and to restore your soul to the Father who loves you through Jesus Christ who died for you. Come home as we stand to sing. Jesus, but lost, is thy heart right with God? Is thy heart right with God?